Hi, my name is Fritzi Horseman, and welcome to Compassion in Action. Today, my guest is Dr. Gabor Mate. I've been a fan of Dr. Mate's for years now, and it is such an honor to have him on this show. And here is Dr. Mate's bio. After 20 years of family practice and palliative care experience, Dr. Mate worked for over a decade in Vancouver's downtown east side with patients challenged by drug addiction and mental illness. The best-selling author of four books published in over 25 languages, Gabor is an internationally renowned speaker, highly sought after for his expertise on addiction, trauma, childhood development, and the relationship of stress and illness. His books include In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, When the Body Says No, The Cost of Hidden Stress, Scattered Minds, The Origins and Healing of Attention Deficit Order, Disorder, and with Dr. Gordon Newfield, Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers. He is currently writing his next book, The Myth of Normal, Illness and Health in an Insane Culture, which will be out in late 2021. Gabor is also co-developer of a therapeutic approach, Compassionate Inquiry, now studied by hundreds of therapists, physicians, counselors, and, other, and others internationally. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Gabor Mate. Um, just one of the most amazing conversations I've had so far. Hi. There you are. Good to Hi. see you. You too. Oh my gosh. Are you ready for this? Uh, totally, yeah. You're, um, I've just been diving into you lately and I'm just, I'm just so grateful for you. You're like a, you're a compassion ambassador for the addicted and the unseen. And uh, I just wanna thank you for your work. You're changing the world. Thank you. Uh, you know, speaking of being seen, have you seen this TV series called When They See Us? No. Oh, no, I haven't. I, I'm too scared to watch it. Have you heard about it? You've heard about yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. It's incredible. It's incredible. Uh, we can maybe talk about it even if you want, but just how oh, rigged and sick and cruel and, 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 uh, and consciously um, dishonest the system is racist and uh classist and like everything else you know yeah and it's systemic and but you actually say that the system is designed so that it's not going to change so that that's it right. won't that's right the system is working the system is working and and what it does is it it, it ostracizes our most vulnerable that's the game Yeah, and um, so I want to I want to read a quote that uh, are, we, are we recording already? Oh yeah, we're we're know that. okay. Well, we're going. We're, <laughs> we're in it because. Um, so you wrote the greatest damage done by neglect, trauma, or emotional loss is not the immediate pain they inflict, but the long-term distortions they induce in the way a developing child will continue to interpret the world and her situation in it. All too often, the ill-conditioned implicit beliefs become self-fulfilling prophecies in our lives. And, uh, you know, I have eight aces. And uh, mm. so my family has, you know, we've been, we've annihilated each other. 
that's been, and it's not until I read The Body Keeps the Score that I even understood I was traumatized. And, mm -hmm. and so the behaviors that I had expressed during my entire life, promiscuity, mm -hmm. um, drug addiction, and now, and I'm a workaholic now, thanks to you, you, you yeah. enlightened me to my own workaholism. The idea that we don't want to be seen, or I mean, we don't want to feel anything. Well, that's a part of it, but but isn't as I'm sure you realize, it's deeper than that. Like, there's something very valid about your promiscuity. For example, what are you actually looking for? It's not the sex you're looking for. I mean, you might be enjoying the sex, but I mean, that's you don't have to be promiscuous to enjoy sex. So, what are you looking for? My father's love. My father's unaddicted love well your father's or somebody's but but don't you have to keep proving to yourself that you're lovable constantly it's this person loves me that person no that's a valid human need isn't it and and when you talk about the workaholism what are you trying to prove to yourself that i'm valuable that i'm lovable yeah, well, that's another human need. That's, a, that's another valid human need, that we're lovable, that we're valuable. These are essential human needs. And so all these behaviors and patterns that then we beat ourselves up for later, right? actually, they serve a purpose. They, 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 they came along for a good reason. Now, they don't work and they create all kinds of problems, but they work in the short term. So people need to be um, very gentle with themselves when they look at their behaviors and when they accuse themselves, you know. And it's it's not even just that in general, it's trauma. Well, that's true, it is trauma, but it's also very specific. These behaviors have a very specific function. Yeah, and but that gentleness, that gentleness, you know, we've been conditioned and to be violent with ourselves and with each other. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, if a promiscuous woman is called uh, a uh, an infomaniac uh, or, uh, you know, or worse, you know, uh, so that what society does is it takes these behaviors that arise out of trauma and genuine human need and then abuses and denigrates people for it for them i mean look at almost any manifestation of trauma whether you're violent whether you're obese what do you get derision is the mildest thing you'll get is that they'll laugh at you. So, so that self-judgment that, that, that people direct against themselves is very powerfully mirrored and in fact instigated by the social attitudes towards behaviors that manifest trauma. Right, right. So it's the war on trauma. It's not just the war on drugs. It's the war on trauma. No, there's a war on trauma. Um, not on trauma. There's a war on the um, 
manifestations of trauma. There you go. If only there was a war on trauma. Not, 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 that, not, you, not that you can war. I mean, the war analogy is not particularly good. But what if, if only there was an understanding that trauma is a problem and that all the institutions that deal with human beings from the schools to the kindergartens to the, to the courts um, took that into account, we'd have a very different society. Well, that's the whole thing. We have, we have people in leadership roles that are making decisions, but they're traumatized, right? They're in fight or flight. Their prefrontal cortex isn't working and they're making decisions about other people's lives. You have um, political leaders, well, someone like Donald Trump, about whom I've been saying since he appeared on the scene that he's a traumatized person. I mean, you can documentably, I said that it's on YouTube, but, but now then, half a year ago a book came out by his niece detailing the severe trauma that this man underwent and every one of his behaviors and people always think that somebody's attacking trump when you say that he's trying i'm not attacking him i'm just describing him you know and and, and we know how severely tra- and people say he could, couldn't have been traumatized he had a rich father well, what does that got to do with it? <laughs> it, it it's it's about um what 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 trump's trauma allowed him to do is to make it possible because when you don't, when you think that the world is against you and you're aggressive, and when you think that the world wants to take everything away from you, which is what he says, literally, he says that in so many words, then you grab everything for yourself, so you're selfish. Well, in the capitalist world, that works. Yeah. You know, um, and he, he gets to be who's, who's become, you know, but he's only the extreme example. And, and uh, these politicians, they are considered to be good, decent human beings. They think nothing about sending people off to die in wars, let, let alone killing hundreds of thousands of people abroad. Don't even think about it. Or the I mean, death even, even the Even the so-called uh, um, decent ones. Yeah, they have no, they have no problem uh, enforcing poverty or... or- yeah. Yeah. starvation or um, okay. substandard education. They have no problem send, giving us $600 instead of $2,000. And neither of that is enough for us, to, for us to have any sustenance in a COVID society. And at the same time, if you look at how many billions the corporations got. Exactly. You know, you know um, but, but the point is that, so the, these traumatized people can get into positions of high power. And in fact, if anybody's really decent and got, has got a really good heart and is somewhat humble, they're never gonna make into political power. And if occasionally one of them does, like Jimmy Carter, who is the closest thing to an honest, decent, honest human being that's been in the White House for in the recent memory, He's, he's seen as weak. And uh, recently, Trump laughed at him. You know why? Because Jimmy Carter carried his own luggage. Yeah. And Trump ridiculed him for that. Isn't that amazing? Because there's decency in that. There, there is no, there are no slaves. There are no servants. We are all servants. We're all there's, servants of each other. That's right. There's humility, you know, and, and, uh, Carter still in his 90s, still helps build housing for people, you know, personally. 
but I'm, what I'm saying is that he's an example who, who was really the most, he was most concerned with human rights. I mean, he didn't have a perfect record. There's all kinds of things I could argue with, but as a person, he really cared. And, and he was honest enough. Like, look at, look, look, compare uh, two people who by their followers are seen as strong leaders. There's, or John Kennedy, for example. Let's put John Kennedy into the mix. You know, his saint, the sainted Kennedy, you know. <laughs> a desperate womanizer. Drug-dependent womanizer. Then there's Clinton. Mm. A desperate womanizer. I have to say nothing about Trump, do I? And his womanizing. And his, you know, misogyny. And his... And his uh, uh, exploitation of women and then you have somebody like carter who actually said he quotes jesus and he said you know it's true i've lusted for other women other than my wife in my heart i've done that now any man who's honest will acknowledge that so carter is honest enough and decent enough to acknowledge that and He's seen as a disaster because he said that. He's seen as an act of weakness. So what does that say about what the society thinks about vulnerability? And and so then we you know come to your project, the prison project. You know, what is your project called? Compassion Prison Project. Compassion Prison. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. You, you, you know, there's a beautiful clip when you're talking to all these people and you're asking, if this has happened to you, step into the circle. And everybody steps into the circle. He's abused, often minority citizens. And they're the ones who are jailed and uh, punished and executed so that's the system and um, we keep thinking it's lack of information and and you know if only people woke up i'm saying it's deeper than that i'm saying it's this is how the system works it, it serves the system and yet it's completely hypocritical um you know, they say they punish people for killing people and then they kill people. They punish people for rape and then they, you know, brutalize their bodies. Um, well, worse than that, <clears throat> they take these traumatized people who volunteer for the army. Because who volunteers for the army, for God's sakes? Poor we, people. We, there's all this prattle about people serving their country and that's nice justification but who is it that really goes into a volunteer army it's people who can't find jobs because they're disadvantaged people usually of low education people who need the structure of the military establishment to to be regulated um people who need, desperately need some value, some meaning in their lives, so now they're told they're serving their country. Okay, often they're traumatized. Then you send them off to foreign countries. 
and you make them do horrible things. And I mean, all you have to do is listen to the stories of the Vietnam veterans, one after the other, the massacres they committed, the horrors they perpetrated or they witnessed or were a part of, same with Iraq. And they see their friends blown up and or they injured themselves. And there's nothing that helps them process those experiences. So they suffer PTSD, they come back, they become violent, they become, they become addicted to ease their pain, to act out their suppressed emotions. And then how are they treated? Now, they become, now they're criminals. Oh. Who created the criminal? We did, right. Yes, there's one, one of the men in, in the film, he was a former vet and now he's in prison. Of course, because he's trained for violence. He's a machine, a violent yeah. machine. And he's been trained not to feel, you know? Haven't we all been? Sorry? Haven't we all been trained not to feel? We have all been, but there's degrees, right? Right. There are degrees. And uh, so anyway, what I'm saying is we create the, the say we, society creates the problem in the first place by how children are not protected, how young families are not supported, by how certain minorities are socially, racially abused uh, by the system itself. So we, we generate the problem and then we make these people into the enemies and we treat them like enemies because You've been in prisons enough, you know, uh, even if you can make a case that you have to protect society from people that can commit violence. Well, that's a reasonable case to make. That doesn't mean they have to be in prison. In, in, in the way that we're envisioning prisons right now. Right. They could be sequestered from society not for the ridiculous decades and so on that we, you know, you know, you sell an ounce of weed three times and then you're in jail for the rest of your life. I mean, it's unbelievable. A truck, but, a sorry? truck. even a truck. One of the guys yeah. just stole the truck. I mean, stole the truck and he's in for the rest of his life. Yeah. 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 But okay. <laughs> you have to sequester people and we talk about the correctional system. Well, then let's correct things. And how do you correct things? Well, by treating people like human beings, by understanding what made them behave the way they behaved, and by helping them heal. We could do that and still protect society. So there's a false equivalence between the prison system as we have it and protecting society. The prison system as we have it does nothing to protect society. In fact, it endangers society. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, so on any level you want to look at it, uh, it fails if we believe that the intentions are good, then it fails. 
if we see that the intention is to control people and to um, isolate people and to create social divisions and to suppress racial minorities um, uh, and to keep a political structure in power that, that always gains points by being tough on crime because people are afraid. So you can exploit the fear. So how many politicians get elected because they're tough on crime? But they're no, never tough on white collar crime. I mean, somebody like uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, is it Pfizer or Purdue? One of them, wh wh whoever made OxyContin. Um, sorry? Pfizer, I think. Pfizer, yeah, I think so. Um, they can knowingly sell drugs that they know to be addictive and they pretend that they're not. Hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of people die. Nobody's gonna go to jail. No accountability. Yeah, they, they may have to pay a fine, you know? So it's not even that we're tough on crime. We're tough on lower class crime, but we're not on tough on upper class crime. So the system works. Yeah. One of the things every, when people go to parole, they say they have to be accountable for their crime. Mm -hmm. Another, another hip, hypocritical uh, request. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, certain people are made accountable and accountable is not even the word. Uh, they just punished. Yeah, and they just and their families are punished. It's they're taxed. They phone calls are you know fifteen, twenty, thirty dollars for fifteen minutes. You really? try, yeah. I mean, it's, some states are just you know they're raping the poor. They're just continuing continuing to just um, destroy the lives because you have to connect with your family members in, in prison. Um, if, so then these people are in jail and they have to pay a lot of money for a phone call. And for their commissary and for, you know, just so they can get enough food to eat because sometimes there, there's not enough food if you call that food or, um, or just to, to buy sneakers, to buy pen, writing utensils. All those things are taxed. A television costs $400, $300. Um, you know, we can buy a television at Best Buy for $110. Hmm. So it's those kinds of things. And so everybody's profiting off of the poor again. It's it's we're raping yeah. the poor. I didn't, um, I didn't even know those, those dirty details. I didn't know that. Yeah. Vendors, industry, and the kind of food that's served, I think the budget is like sometimes 20 or 30 cents a day to feed these men that are, you know, three or 400 pound men. Um, no wonder they're angry and depressed and suicidal. Well, yeah, not only that. How do you rehabilitate people when you treat them so badly, you know? And, um, well, how is it even possible that somebody can make a profit off a prison? I mean, see, if I wanted to profit off a prison, what would I would do? I would provide the cheapest food, mm -hmm. the, the least trained guards, the worst conditions, and then my profit, then the corporation that owns the prison, their profits go up because your costs go down. That sounds about right. Uh, 
So, so, I mean, it, so it works. It's working. It's working. And the guards, the correctional officers working are from those same communities usually. So the people they're, they're guarding are the people yeah. that they lived with. The same amount of trauma, four or more aces for everyone. You know, prison, prison guards are a highly traumatized population. They have a high rate of suicide, um, mental health conditions. Uh, of course, they come from the same population. But now they're given a uniform and a baton and a power to torment other people, to act their own stuff on other people. So, I mean, it's... Did, did you know the life expectancy of a, of a guard is 59 years old? Is that right? Yeah. No, I didn't know that. So, it's not surprising because who gets recruited into that kind of a job? Right. $15 an hour. And it's a very stressful job because you're dealing with a very difficult population. Yeah. Always in fight or flight, right? Hypervigilance, yeah. constant, yeah. you know. The anxiety levels are huge. Yeah. And again, and this is a, a failure of the system in general. I mean, in almost any profession, the medical profession, uh, the, the, the teaching profession, the legal profession, uh, in many jobs, uh, in many working class jobs, there's a tremendous amount of stress that's generated as, a, as an aspect of the work itself. People are highly stressed, but there's nothing in the system to help people deal with stress. I mean, uh, even in a highly paid profession like mine, relatively speaking, um, people are on their own when it comes to dealing with their stresses. And and uh, this, this is, like I so said, in, in this society, what there is, is um, systemic ignorance of trauma and is a systemic ignorance of stress. And we talk about stress reduction and corporations bringing in yoga teachers and meditation teachers, but they don't talk about the conditions that generate the stress. Now, so, you know, going back to your prison, what, what in the system helps these guards deal with their stresses. Nothing. Actually listens to them. You know, so. Yeah. It's, it's like everybody's caught in this vortex of trauma and stress. And that's the, that's the system. Right, and when you're stressed, you're not thinking. You're not thinking clearly. I know for myself, I can't think clearly when I'm trying to get a hundred Christmas cards in the mail in 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it takes me a lot of self-care to, to, um, to stay grounded when I'm challenged, you know, uh, in my personal life. Professionally, I managed pretty well, but I'm telling you something. I was in a court case a few years ago. The defense attorney wanted to bring me in as an expert witness. Uh, in a case where somebody had been killed. I could... <laughs> the killing took place and nobody questioned that the accused had committed the killing. The question was the circumstances and his state of mind. 
Now, the prosecution's job, of course, is to prove that he was deliberately doing this fully conscious, present, and deliberate. Which, of course, he wasn't. He was under the effect of alcohol, traumatic stuff and all that. The brain goes offline. He didn't even intend to commit a killing. Now, the court does not give a damn about what actually happened. The, 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 the prosecution's job is to prove that this guy is a deliberate, conscious criminal. Now, why is that their job? Why, who sets up this adversarial system where one, one side has to prove one thing and somebody has to prove its opposite? Why don't we just look at the truth and then decide, you know, okay, what should we do now? But it's no, it's adversarial. So the whole adversarial system, like in this film that we talked about, when they see us, about these five black teenagers that were coerced into confessing to a crime they weren't even near. And then Donald Trump called for the death penalty mm. before the trial was even done. Where the prosecution lied, where the police lied. And the prosecutors, they just want to prove the case. They don't care about justice. Mm -mm. They're just trying to win. No, so I'm in this court situation, okay? I'm talking about stress here. At that time, I was 75 years old, I think 74. Internationally, I'm not boasting here, I'm just saying, I'm a well-respected speaker and teacher, considered to be an expert on addictions. I just come back from addressing a, ju a judicial conference in Melbourne, Australia on addiction. I've spoken to judges in Canada and so on. I mean, I don't have to prove my credentials here. The prosecution, all they want to do is to disqualify me <laughs> because they know, because they've seen my report. And my report says this guy was not in the right state of mind for obvious reasons, which I'm not going to go into. And they come after me. This is to prove that I'm not, and, and the, what they do is they put ridiculous questions to me. They put words in my mouth that I never said or wrote. They do everything to provoke me. And it worked because yeah. I wasn't prepared for it. I thought I was going there just to answer questions about, you know, no, their job is to discredit me and to egg me on. So I became very agitated in the courtroom. I became very stressed. I didn't think straight. I didn't realize it was a game. If I realized it was a game, I would have stayed very calm. Okay, that's the game. I'm going to stay calm. I'm just going to ask you questions. But I wasn't coached in that. I actually went in there with some good faith. So I wasn't prepared for the stress of it. And so I reacted. No, that's on me. I'm not blaming the prosecution for how I reacted. That was my own failure to stay grounded and to recognize what was going on. So I wasn't qualified as a as, as an expert witness, um, which was a blow to the ego. But but it that doesn't matter. 
But here's what I thought. Here I was, a 74-year-old, middle-class, well-established, well-respected, socially connected person who's done a lot of work on myself over the decades. And in the face of that manufactured hostility in the courtroom, I had a hard time. Now, what's it like for a 20-year-old mm-hmm. who's accused of something and they get that kind of an assault from the prosecution and they have, don't have the resources and there's, I didn't have much at stake. The only thing I had at stake was, will I get qualified or will I get not qualified, you know? But for the defendant to be subjected to that kind of hostile, aggressive, demeaning, invalidating, just what's it like? And this is the court system. So that's what I realized. That's what I realized. Now, I'll tell you something else. Three psychiatrists had evaluated this guy. One for the prosecution, two for the defense. The defense psychiatrists very appropriately argued that he wasn't in a clear state of mind. But didn't know anything about trauma. They just, you know, came to that conclusion because of the alcoholism and so on. But all three of the psychiatrists said that he had a happy childhood. So I talked to him for half an hour in the jail. He said he had a happy childhood. So I said, okay, well, tell me about your happy childhood. In 10 minutes, it turned out that in his happy childhood, when he was four years old, his brother threw him to the ground, breaking his arm and set fire to his hair. His father was a drinker, was an alcoholic. Mother depressed, probably has ADHD, and he was bullied in school. And this is the happy childhood that all the psychiatrists presented to the court. They just don't know how to ask, even ask the questions. And nobody knows what those kinds of traumas do to the brain, body, and spirit. Well, that's what I would argue. I said, well, these, the, 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 these kind of incidents or these kind of experiences, they affect the brain. Yeah. And I'm not gonna go into the details of the case anymore, not except that this guy had all kinds of trauma and that affected his drinking, his gambling behaviors. And coupled with the drink that he had that day with some emotionally difficult experiences in the previous week or two, he was in a certain state where you say, when you're stressed, it's hard for you to make the right decision. (laughs) It's not a decision. A decision. And then people people are then um, convicted as if they had made conscious decisions. Same with addicts. It's the same thing. It's yeah. the same. We're doing the same work on different addicts are not making a choice to use. That's right. I, I mean, I worked in addiction medicine, as you know, for about 12 years in a very tough area of Vancouver. And 
you know, I just, for some reason, never met a single person who decided, hey, I have a happy life, but hey, my ambition is to become a drug addict and move to the streets of the, the downtown east side in Vancouver. That's what I want to do with my life, you know. Nobody ever decides to be an addict. An addict. And, 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 the, and the people that do become addicts, like you were talking about in your case, with your behavior addictions, there's good reason. And, and, and the same with the substance addicts. Yeah. And, and, which which is, that, is that those drugs, they temporarily do something to the brain that makes that person feel like a human being momentarily. Well, that's nothing to you if you've always felt like a human being, like a genuine, connected, loved, valued human being. But what if you never have? Then that experience. And people have told me, it makes you feel like a normal human being. And it's all based on the trauma, which affected their perceptions of themselves, their perceptions of the world. And of course, the very circuits that get implicated in addiction in the brain develop under the impact of the environment, particularly the emotional environment. So when that emotional environment is deprived or hostile, or especially if you're a very sensitive kid, um, you're gonna be very affected by all that. And then your brain circuits of connection and pain relief and, 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 and feeling alive and feeling motivated these are all distorted in their development. Then this, you, do, you do this substance. I mean, look, you talked about your promiscuity. And I've had my own behavior addictions. I never had a substance addiction. But it wasn't the behavior I was after. It was how it made me feel that I was after. And whether it's sexaholism or gambling or shopaholism, you know, you get a hit in your brain of, this, of dopamine. All of a sudden you feel alive and vital and it's exciting, you know? In other words, you feel alive. Now, why do you need to feel alive? Because as a kid, you had to deaden your feelings. That's the only way you survived your childhood because it was too painful. It was way too painful. Yeah. Yeah. So then when, then when you shut down your feelings, not that you do it deliberately, but the brain does, so, so you don't suffer. It's a protective mechanism. Then later on, you're looking for some kind of excitement that makes life worthwhile. Yeah. And that's when the behavior addictions and the drug addictions also come in. So it's all very straightforward and rational and, and nothing mysterious about it. But even the medical profession doesn't get it. They think of addiction as this brain disease, you know. Well, yeah, the brain is involved. The brain is involved. If I pick up this bottle, my brain is involved. That doesn't make it a brain disease. It just means that some circuits in my brain are telling me to do this and I do it, you know. But it's the same with the addiction. So, yeah, you can show the brain is a troubled brain. But what made it troubled? I went to the doctor and I... I asked her if she knew what the adverse childhood experiences quiz was all about and she had no idea. And I said, well, I have high cholesterol. I wanna see if my new, my new awareness about my trauma has gotten better because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm aware now and I'm doing better things. She's like, well, 
to do an ACE test, we'd have to go all the way up. It's like impossible. I'm like, why don't you just educate yourself? But just the idea of trauma in the medical industry is just crickets. You know, Fritzi, I, I met one of the most famous psychiatrists in the United States a few years ago at a conference we were both speaking at. I mean, um, I won't even give you a clue about him, but he's as high up as they get. I asked him what, are the, what he thought of the ACE studies. He says, what are those? So now, you know, thank God that's changing. Um, in a limited way, it's changing. More and more psychiatrists are finding out about it. They're interested in, you know, learning about it. A friend of mine is a psychiatrist in Colorado. He's already actually organizes an online course, a trauma-informed course for psychiatrists. But the fact that he even has to do it is a statement on the deficient education that physicians get. Well, These are psychiatrists, let alone the average family physician. I mean, all of us need, I mean, the whole society needs education about trauma so we can stop hurting our children. I mean, just knowing that my child was in my body when I was in such anxiety, you know, I know I've affected my son's, my son's life and his, you know, I can see some of his own anxiety. I mean, I mean, I didn't abuse him to, the, you know, nothing like what I grew up with, but, you know, he can feel that. It's the same with us, you know, when we were young parents, we were very stressed. We had a stressed marriage and my wife could actually feel the stress and she knew that the stress was affecting the baby, but she seemed, she was powerless to make a difference. She didn't know enough to she didn't know enough to um, to stop the circumstances, you know, and we know the effects. Yeah, and you know, just to let people know, this is not how we came out. We didn't. We came as divine, beautiful, integrated humans, and then, I mean, well, we came with that potential. Um, right. By the time a lot of us are born, we're already stressed, you know, and uh, we, as we know from a lot of studies. And that's why in my book on addiction, uh, in the realm of hungry ghosts, in my appendix on um, prevention, I say that the prevention of addiction needs to begin at the first prenatal visit. Absolutely. I mean, if, you, if, if you need to begin somewhere, at least that's a place to begin. Yeah. But, but it, you know, if what you say, what you say in that book is that we're on this hero's journey. Yeah. Um, you quote Joseph Campbell. It's, it's an exquisite quote. I'm, I'm just going to indulge us for a second, if you don't mind. Yeah, I don't remember quoting Joseph Campbell. I, I'm glad you do. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it, it just ties into all of us. Like, yeah. Um, each carries within himself the all. Therefore, it may be sought and discovered within all heroic Myths are prototypes of what is the greatest journey of all, the quest for spiritual truth inside the soul. There is only one story, story only one quest, one adventure, the monomyth, and there is only one hero. I quote that. That's pretty yeah. good. Aren't yeah. you? I should, maybe, maybe I should read my book. Um, <laughs> I, I, haven't, I haven't. I've been too busy writing a new one. But, but of course, what is so beautiful about your work? is that 
And I've seen other work as well. I don't know if you know about the prison Enneagram project. Yeah, I love them. So, yeah. Susan, yeah. Well, they, you know, they, they have their own particular method. And they go in to meet these people who hate themselves and see themselves as beyond repair, not even deserving repair. But then with some compassion, people actually open up to that hero's journey within themselves. And they become a lot saner and compassionate than a lot of the people running outside who are in authority in society. Yeah. But of course, the prison system says, well, the fact that you transformed and you changed, that doesn't mean make any difference to us because I mean, look what you did 30 years ago. Right. Or, or 10 years ago or whatever. Right. And listen, Fritzi, I can't um, bypass the opportunity to say something about this terrible case. You know, this woman that they're going to execute? Mm. Have yeah. you read her story? It's the child that she took out of the belly. Yeah. yeah. How they convicted her? How they didn't see that this is woman totally insane? Totally insane. And how decades later, or how they want to execute her now? Despite the incredible trauma that she went through, that that imagine she, she, she kills this mother, she takes the baby, pregnant mother, she takes the baby home, pretends it's her own. Now, what person, remotely in their right mind, could think they could do that? There is no. What jury would convince somebody like that? What judge would allow that to happen? What defense? would not realize the trauma. What prosecution would have the inhumanity to even go after her? And what court system would end up keeping her on death row? And she might stay alive on the technicality. Yeah. If, 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 if Trump gets, if Trump is out of the White House before this technicality expires, there's a chance she might live. I know. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, they, they executed Wesley Perkey. Um, I yeah. sent him his, an ACE test. He had 10 out of 10, of course. And he yeah. came home from school and his father had blown his brains out on his bed, his, his own Wesley's bed. His crime, he had not, you know, of course it was another, a crime of annihilation, but he was annihilated. He has no prefrontal cortex to talk about. I mean, you know, you just, a mad dog at that point you know you need to take him out of society yes but you do not at least until you can heal him but you do not have to continue to annihilate him and execute him mm -hmm. and you know i mean he had some redeeming words he had really done the work and uh, that's what we're doing what's it like for you what's it like for me yeah, to witness that. I mean, you you know this person. You you know you 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 your your heart is invested in it, and then he's killed. Yeah, I mean, I just well, right now, and the one of the men in in the film step inside the circle. He has COVID. The old man who said this was one of the best days of my life, Howard Ford. He has COVID, and he may not make it. So, yeah. <laughs> I know I'm exhausted from all this pain that I'm, that I absorb.
Yeah, thanks for calling that out. Listen, not to be a doctor, but are you looking after yourself? I'm learning. I'm learning. It's self-care is it's 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 a word I never even understood or a, a phrase. It's self-care, what's that? Um have you ever read my book When the Body Says No? I'm in the middle of it right now. I, I had well, to I just, yeah. Well, I, I hope it's I hope you're there's some teaching in there for you. Thank you. I hear that. I mean because you're doing great work, um, essential work, holy work, but you can't let it eat you up. I know, I know the stories, the stories that come through my desk are, you know, these sexual predators are, they've been raped and raped and raped before they commit these crimes. And, you know, and they are the in the prison system. They're considered the lowest of the low. They, you know, you know, I may have killed somebody, but at least I didn't rape a child. And I think our society feels that way as well. But that child, that man, was raped before he raped. And do you know who Marshall Rosenberg is? Yes, we make sure that our our facilitators read his book. Are you okay? Nonviolent so, communication. Yes. So great. So, so he talks about, remember that experience that he talks about where he's visiting this prisoner who killed a child during a sex crime? Remember his, what he said, what he saw? No, I don't remember that, no. Well, it's incredible. So he visits this man in prison who's done this horrible crime. And Marshall sits with him and at some point he says to him, you know, I don't think you meant to kill anybody. I don't think you meant to hurt anybody. I think you needed to see the same pain in somebody else's eyes that you experienced because you were so alone with it. My jaw dropped when I heard that because I totally get it. But to have that degree of insight and compassion, mm. but it's true. People say, well, you're excusing things, coddling. You're not excusing anything. You're just understanding things. Yeah, and to see to see him as a human, it, um, you know, serial killers and, and pedophiles or sexual, anyway, whatever we want to call them, that, that's been the hardest part for me to, you know, embrace is, is you know, because it's com the Compassion Prison Project is for everybody in prison. It's yeah. the correctional officers. It's the people who've done anything that yeah. there is no there's no boundary there. Yeah. And so to come into into relationship with that and that, but that's part of myself. Nice. I am the sexual predator. I am the serial killer. I have done those things in maybe not in this lifetime or whatever, but I am capable of all of that. Do, do you know, um, do you happen to know who Edith Egger is, E-G-E-R? Mm-mm. Okay, well, so she's a um, Hungarian-Jewish-born psychotherapist in California. She's 92 or 93 years old now. When she was 16, she was taken to Auschwitz with her parents and her sister. Her parents were killed there. She survived. So she's written two books. One is called The Secret, The, cho the Choice, I'm sorry. The other is called The Gift, 
and I have them on my shelf as I'm looking at them. And in one of the books, she says, she actually ends up forgiving Hitler. Yeah. And she says, we all have a Hitler inside of ourselves. It's so true. And uh, I, my sister and I had a huge fight three weeks ago and that was Hitler. I was Hitler. I was out of my mind. Yeah. But he was abused. We know he was abused, you know, and all of his commandants were all abused. And I grew up in a German family. I mean, my father was, you know, German Protestant. I mean, how much abuse did he suffer? Right. Yeah. Yeah. My, and my mother was abandoned when she was, she's put up for adoption when she was a baby. So, you know, Mm -hmm. you understand that because of. And people always think that to understand these things and to want to act from an understanding is somehow excusing something or, or justifying something or, or, or it's not about that. It's just about, do we want to be human beings or do we not want to be human beings? Do we want to be conscious and aware and informed? Or do, you just want, do we rather just act from emotion and, and, and vengeance and, and um, our own unresolved anger? Who do we want to be? And what kind of world do we want to create? I know. We want to be human beings. We want accidental that if you get the the great spiritual teachers like the buddha or jesus that in their life histories murderers show up or prisoners show up and these great avatars of compassion they're compassionate Buddha is compassionate to a murderer. Jesus talks about visiting the prisoner, which is what you're doing. And so, and these are the beings that most highly represent the divinity in humanity. Hmm. So, is that our aspiration or is our aspiration just to be blind and, and, and um, unconscious? So it's not a question of coddling or excusing anything. It's a question of who do we want to be and what kind of society, what kind of a world do we want to create? Yeah, do we want to cut ourselves off from that? Well, that's what we've done. We've cut ourselves off from the part of us, part yeah. of us that... Yeah. It's traumatized, it's addicted. We've cut ourselves off from feeling that. We're watching Netflix and checked out. Yeah, mind you, there's Netflix, then there's Netflix. Because if you watch this series, when they see us about right, these, right. you know, they, that I'd have to say five stars to Netflix for creating that series, you know. And to um, Ava, Ava DuVernay, yeah, of yeah. course. Mind you, these things happen usually 20 years after the fact. But where's the media when it's actually happening? So it's like with the wars, you know, 
after the Vietnam War is over, the press eventually comes across to acknowledging that they were blind and complicit. But does it stop them from being blind and complicit during the next war, the Iraq war? No, they're not. They're cheerleading. And then later on, they discovered, oh, no, geez, maybe there weren't any weapons of mass destruction. And maybe all the people who said that they weren't were right. But does that stop them from supporting the politicians who fomented that war? No. And does it stop them from being cheerleaders and blind when the next war comes around? And it's the same with the prison thing. Like the, every once in a while, I mean, the New Yorker has had a whole lot of articles, really good articles about the prison system. But they should be investigating every case. They, they should be publicizing every case. They should be doing, <laughs> do, do, every time it happens, they should be there. And all the cases that are backlogged and all the, all the, corrupt prosecutors, every case should be looked at. Yeah. I mean, we need to really like enough of this. We would, we could empty out the prisons. And though the other thing we need to do is help the people that have been living in prisons so they can be aware of the trauma that they've experienced, not only in their childhood, but living in prisons. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's do that. I'm <laughs> okay. All we have to do is figure out how you and I can rule the world. Well, as you said in another podcast, creating awareness is, is one of the most important things we can do. This is, for, for our organization, this is the year of do no harm. Hmm. We wanna create no, we want no harm to be created in prisons and to bring childhood trauma awareness to everyone working in prison, working and living in prison. Well, let me ask you something. So how do prison administrators and officials respond to your work? Um, there's been some openness to it. And a lot of the prisons now have been going to Norway, which, you know, has the, the, the yeah. model prison yeah. system. So there's some, there's some movement there. North Dakota, they've practically over, like become Norway up there. There is some movement um, and some reluctance. I think, you know, our, our feelings that every correctional officer needs trauma training. They need to know what a trigger is so that they can respond instead of react. Just like I need trauma training so I can respond instead of react, which is why I read the presence process, which has changed my life. And yeah. so, you know, because of you, oh. I sent the book to 12 people living in prison and wow. I'll let you know what they say when they're done reading the book. I got some bad news for you. Uh oh. Michael Brown, who wrote that wonderful book, endorsed Donald Trump. That's okay. Which is almost, which is almost unbelievable, but it's... <laughs> My Buddha teacher endorsed Donald Trump, too. So, I mean... You, you, you can be aware in some areas, but not in other. I know I see that all the time. You know, but... but, but anyway, I'm, I'm glad... Yeah, yeah. Those 10 weeks changed my life. I'm going to do it again. Yeah, great. I mean, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, you're and, and I know you also took part in that Compassionate Inquiry weekend, right? Yes, I did. Two months ago. Yeah. You know what? Uh, we have a training for that as well. I know. Like, like an ongoing training. And I'm not saying you should do the whole year because it's very intensive and it's very demanding time-wise. 
but there are short versions of it that you could get. Okay, I'll yeah, do it. I think it might actually help you and your staff. Absolutely, and you know, the fact that you have compassionate inquiry as something that you do is just, yeah. you know, you know, we have this, you know, of course we're all one. So I know you're part of me. I, that's clear. That's. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, thank you for um, showing, showing step inside the circle on your Facebook page. I really appreciate that. Well, having said that, that inner Hitler that showed up for you with your sister. Yeah. It can show up for me as well. It so, you know, that. None of us are not. I don't. Very few of us are wholly integrated. You know. There's some. Yeah, Adjante, Byron Katie. But it's on. It's ongoing work. Yeah. It is, and it's compassionate, though. Again, like I looked at my behavior with my sister, and I made sure I was compassionate with myself because. Oh, good. Yeah, because I know that this is coming from a. This is old programming old patterns that were in they were thrown into me when I was a little girl I mean and my sisters you know we just we went right into this the old pattern we went right there but it's a pattern of annihilation we annihilate we went we went for the jugular and what was weird is I actually saw myself in it and I I knew I was in it and I knew I could take myself out but I didn't I wanted to go isn't that interesting how we can watch ourselves do something know that it's not right but being capable or at least on some level choosing not to stop it. I've, but, I've seen myself do that. But it, it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to stop. And, but then you, you ask, is that a choice? Did I make the choice to stay in it, even though I knew it was going to destroy my sister and destroy our relationship for the time being? Well, at some point, I suppose the only thing you can say is, as soon as you become aware of a choice, at least you're in a position to make it, and then you can stop. Right. And then you can own it. And then you can say, this is what I did. I was the one that did it. It's totally on me. What you said, whatever you said or did, that does not account for how I behaved and my reaction and my assault on you. You can do that. Yes. yes. And the more you do it, the more you empower yourself not to be that way next time. Yes, it's it's like an evolving consciousness because it is. Yeah. I I saw me making the choice to to dig in with my sister. Yeah. But it there was like a it was like another step of consciousness. I think it was like a like a dig in is an interesting metaphor. When do people dig in? Well, when they're in their ego, right? When they want to be right. No, but what's the, what's the actual metaphor? Where does it come oh, from? Oh, digging your own grave. Or Well, that's one way to put it. But when people say dig in, that's not what they mean. Oh, eating. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I'm too in my... Well, well, how about trench warfare? When you actually did, you know, you, 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 you dig in and you're going to just hold your position. Right. So when do people dig in? It's when they perceive themselves in a war under attack. That's so that's sure. the situation you were in. So you dug in. You're going to hold your ground. You weren't going to be dominated. You're going to defend yourself, even destroy the enemy before they destroyed you. 
In other words, you were caught in some old pattern. You know, you know this. But I'm just saying that the metaphor itself is so revealing. It, but it's like the people not wearing masks or it's the people, you know, we're all dug in in our own way. We're all in this war with each other. You well, know? the people are not wearing masks. We really perceive themselves as being controlled right. and, and not respected and um, manipulated. Now, it's true. That's a truth in their lives. Only it's not true now. It was true at some point, which they haven't dealt with. So they're reacting from a really childhood position. They're reacting to their own trauma without realizing it. I know, that's what I was seeing as well. I, and I saw, I saw the way other people responded it with arrogance and yeah. you know, then that it just, it, it enforces it, it enforces it. And yeah. then yeah, it's yeah. separation because we are all in this together. If we don't get this COVID under control, we're gonna be in this isolation chamber for another two or three years. So yeah. it behooves us to gently recognize that the, their needs as well. I mean, the trouble is, it's almost like people live in different worlds. I mean, how many opportunities do you and I get to talk to people like that? And to, because you have to really spend time with them. Yeah. And really listen. I know. And do you even know such people yourself? Uh, well, I'm working with some women. Um, I'm actually working with some women who probably would have done something like that in, in, in a prison right okay. now. Fair but, enough. Well, uh, then, you know, what I would say to these people once I had their relationship is, you know what, the sense of being controlled and manipulated, it's very strong in you. And there's a good reason for it. Yeah. Is it possible, though, that it stems from some earlier experience? That it's sometimes you're really powerless and people were manipulating you and controlling you to your own detriment. So you're very suspicious. And especially when these people are supposed to be authority figures on your side. Yeah. So I get it. I do too. I do too. I'm not faulting them. I just, I want everybody to be safe. I want everybody to get through this so we can build a new world. Yeah. And, um, well, and so here's the thing. Here's, I got bad news for you. <laughs> Uh -oh. Now, and I'll have to bring this to an end, but um, you and I could work for the rest of our lives 24-7, seven days a week, and a lot of the stuff will still continue to happen. So, which doesn't mean that the work is not worthwhile because there's a larger picture here, which is that human beings are capable of consciousness. We can't make that happen. We can contribute our little candle to the light to make sure the light doesn't go out and that it continues. 
there'll be more defeats along the way than victories. That's just the system is set up like that. Which doesn't mean one doesn't keep going, but but, but it's not to take it personally and also to take care of ourselves. Because even if you totally exhausted yourself, you'd still fail. Fail, quote unquote. So in that, um, so yeah, the work is essential and it's holy work and um, it'll bear fruit. You and I have both met individuals who because of our presence in their lives have found degrees of satisfaction and self-awareness and healing and, 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 and you know, even joy sometimes. You know, um, and at the same time, one cannot be attached to the result that the uh, the value of the work is in the work itself. Yeah. Yes, we're on a journey to heal ourselves, right? As Joseph Campbell said. Yeah. I mean, that's it. It's but it's. But in healing ourselves, we can help heal the whole, which is... Yeah, absolutely. And I will not... I will keep holding that candle. I'll keep that candle lit. Yeah. And, and I thank you for your work, Dr. Monte. Well, listen, thank you for your work. Yeah. Uh, your work is much grittier than mine at this point because uh, you're going into the belly of the beast on a regular basis. Uh, I mean, I used to, um, I was a physician working in that area, but the prisons are the most difficult manifestations of the dysfunction of the society. And that's where you're putting yourself. Uh, much easier for me, giving lectures and writing books at this point. So- uh, Well, you've earned it. Really, so I really appreciate and value your work. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, um, it's beautiful work. Thank you. and. Uh... Thank you for your wisdom. I mean, I've learned so much from you and mm. the men and women I work with, I help, I help them because you've helped me understand where they are and, 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 um, that's great. And think of all the people they will help. Exactly. Because one thing you've probably noticed is that in prison, especially, but not only in prison, when people get it, they right away want to, they right away want to help other people, don't they? Absolutely. That's their first impulse. That's how I was when I learned I was traumatized. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, we got to tell everyone. Yeah, that's right. So it's great. Thank you, Dr. Mate. Gabor. Gabor. Thank you, yeah. Gabor. Thank you, Fitzy. Okay, we'll, bye-bye. We'll talk when your book comes out. Yeah, or maybe before. Okay. okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my God. Uh, just amazed at my conversation with Dr. Mate. Thank you for listening. And if you like this interview, please, please comment and share this and go to our website at compassionprisonproject.org 
to learn more about how you can help us either donate or volunteer or bring compassion to your own prisons in your own states. Thank you so much.